may be seated. Jesus Jesus is all sufficient. John 6, 1 through 14 is simply one paragraph in an entire Bible that teaches us Jesus is all sufficient. You know, insufficiency is the way of mankind. I remember the first time, you know, that I got a checking account. And the first thing my dad said when I finally had my checking account was this. Son, it'll only give you what you put into it. You can't make withdrawals on something that's not in the bank. If you do, the bank will send you a notice. And what will the notice say? Some of you have seen it, unfortunately for you. Insufficient funds. Insufficiency is the state of every man, woman, and child that has ever touched the face of the earth. Insufficient. We are totally insufficient. Think about it in your daily life. You go to the pantry, open the door. What do you think in your mind? No food. And in some way you say, our provision is insufficient. Your wife, though she is good and I'm sure glorious to you, at times, only a few times though, ladies, your husband thinks, my wife is insufficient. There are a few times that women actually look at their husbands and say he's sufficient. But it's only a few times that it ever occurs in a marriage. Because most of the times they say, my husband, though he's a good man, is not enough. He's insufficient. And children, as good and excited as we may be about them, especially when they're too little to do anything cognitively to us that's wrong, though they are still sinners. As they grow up, it becomes very obvious. Children are insufficient. They won't make you happy. We run a rat race in this nation to earn a paycheck that you guessed it at the end of the month is insufficient many times. It sure ain't going to get us to the next month. Bank accounts insufficient. Earning powers insufficient. Our marriage is insufficient. Our children are insufficient. Our education is insufficient. I've come to realize that in my own life. My brother showed me a clip on YouTube last night that shows there's insufficiency rampant in our nation. I don't know how many of you have seen it. I guess it's public knowledge now. I'm not making fun of her. She's probably going to be famous, unfortunately, in this nation. But Miss South Carolina showed that our education system is insufficient. You know the story. She was asked, you know, a fifth of the people in this nation don't know, cannot locate the United States on a global map. Could you explain the problem? Her answer was vastly insufficient. 
I'm not going to go through it. Though I don't advertise for YouTube, it's worth the watch. Be careful what you look for on there, but go in and type in Miss South Carolina, and, 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 and it'll be 100, block, 100 little videos there. But her answer was insufficient, okay? And if you've seen it, you're chuckling. But she's just an example of an entire society that is insufficient. And yet today, I stand before you to proclaim the name of one who exists, who is sufficient. All sufficient. Completely and in and of Himself, in need of nothing. And when you have Him, you know He's all sufficient. You make withdrawals on Him, and you never put anything in, really. You don't add to Him. He gives from the abundant overflow of His riches, which are in heaven. He's sufficient. We come to a miracle that probably is uh, well known among you, and I know it is for me. The feeding of the 5,000 men. I want to set the scene for you and move into the text. We've got 14 verses to cover. A lot of ground. But it's a story, okay? It's true in every part. I won't touch every part. It's not necessary to dissect it. I think it loses its impact when you do that to this story. We're going to look at the big over picture. The overall picture of what Jesus is doing for us in this passage. The scene is simple. It's the east side of the Galileans, uh, the Galilean territory. Jesus has gone across the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee. It was known by several names. In the Old Testament, it was known to us um, and by, by older name. And then it became known as the Sea of Galilee. And then even in Jesus' name, had, they had begun to uh, change names to the Sea of Tiberias because Herod Agrippa had uh, built a city, a fortified city in honor of Tiberius, the emperor in Rome. And so it became known. It was a metropolitan center and the sea became known by the city. So it was even in transition. You see that there early in this passage. He gives both names, John does, so that you cannot be confused about what, he, what, what location he's speaking of. Galilee was a little known, countryfied, desolate place. It was not like Judea, which bustled with activity in big cities. It was not a metropolitan center by any stretch. It was a desert. It was mountainous desert. Now, this desert is not like the Sahara Desert that we're so familiar with, the pictures of these sand dunes and this driving wind. Don't get that picture in your mind. That's not what this place is. This desert is a mountainous place. Uh, the Golan Heights is what it's called today. There was a very important battle fought there in 1966 between Israel and Syria. If you're old enough to have been born, you know and uh, if you've studied that part of history, it was a very crucial part of history. So this place is well known to the people of that day. And it is a desert. And by desert, we mean in the summer, the temperatures rise as high as 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Those are highs that have been recorded there. And at night, it can even drop. Into, freezing ter- into the freezing territory of the thermometer. And so you have a place of extremes. It was not a place you wanted to camp out for enjoyment. 
people try to stay away from this area. Jesus is often seen going into this area to be alone. He was going there to get alone, to be with his father, to refuel his tank, to take his men, to try to talk with them about the important features of God's kingdom. This is where he goes often in his ministry to get some solitude and some rest. He crosses the sea. In John 5, he's just performed a great miracle. The text tells us he does a sermon, a teaching on himself about how he is divine, the Son of God, the Messiah. And then the text says he performed many more miracles. He performed many more miracles. So he's drawn a crowd. As you can imagine, if someone showed up in Jacksonville and they were healing the sick, setting the the captive free, the demon-possessed were coming and demons cast out, it would draw a crowd. If the blind were able to see, the lame were able to walk, those who had cancer were immediately cured, it would draw a significant crowd. And he had a crowd that was building around him. And then we're told... After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He left that crowd, that throng of people. The large crowd had grown, you see there in verse 2 of chapter 6, because they saw the signs He was doing on the sick. This is the only miracle of the Lord recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew and Luke focus on the miracle itself. The power that it displays in Jesus and His ability to create food for a multitude. They focused on the miracle. Mark, on the other hand, focused on Jesus' compassion. If you read Jesus, uh, the account of Mark about Jesus in this story, it's all about the way He saw the people. Matter of fact, Mark says He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were in this desert. He had been teaching. He had been doing these miracles. He had drawn this crowd. And he feels responsible for the fact that they're now in a desert and it's late in the day and they have no provision, no food. They are insufficient for what lies ahead of them. John doesn't focus so much on the miracle or on the compassion Jesus shows. He focuses in in chapter 6 on this as a crucial turning point in Jesus' ministry. And we're not going to get there today. But in starting in verse 56 of this chapter until the end, you're going to see that people begin to deny Jesus. They turn and leave Him. And then He even looks at the twelve and says, Will you leave me also? And that famous speech between Him and Peter occurs in this chapter. It was a crucial point in Jesus' ministry. Up until this time, He's drawn a large crowd. From this point forward till His death, the crowds get less and less. He cuts away the fat. He gets down to the lean, the ones that really have faith in Him as the Son of God. So, we have this picture of Jesus in this desert. What what time of the year was it? Well, it wasn't the peak of summer. We see that from the, uh, the editorial note of John here. Later in the text, it says uh, in verse 10, if you'll look down in the text, now there was much grass in the place. This indicates it was the spring of the year. In this desert, I've never seen it with my own eyes, though I've seen many pictures of it, and many of you may have seen pictures. Flowers bloom in the spring. Grass comes forth. And it's a beautiful place, though it is still dry and a desert. Seeds lie dormant for years here, and a little bit of water in the winter brings forth a great uh, upswing in the vegetation in this place. So it was the spring of the year. 
How long has it been since we were in John 5? It looks like if you're reading the account, it happened the next day, doesn't it? You're reading along, Jesus is teaching, then it says, Now after these things, He withdrew from the crowd, went across the sea, and He was performing many signs and miracles. It looks like He's just going around, but I want you to catch the flow of it. The Feast of Tabernacles is happening in John 5, and now we're at Passover. It says Passover is near. Six months have passed. Jesus has done probably at least six months worth of healing. Six months worth of miracles. Six months worth of teaching. Some people would say John 5 is the Passover and now we're at another Passover. That would be a whole year past. So there's a lot of time lapse between John 5 and John 6. He's had time to do a lot of ministry. He's had time to have impact on a lot of people. And therefore the crowd is large. That's the setting of the place. It's a desert. There's no food. There's no water. It's late in the day. Jesus has worn the people out teaching and doing miracles. And as the sun sets on that day, there's an important event that takes place which teaches us that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. What need do you have that you don't believe He can meet? That's the question you need to ask. See, you're going to leave this place to go to a restaurant. Maybe go home. Maybe some of you got dinner cooking right now. You got food. This nation is gluttoned with food. That's why we're the most obese nation in the world. We We don't worry about food. Not even the poor in our society worry about food. The government gives it to them. And listen, six days a week in Anston, Alabama, you can get two to three hot meals with no charge. Food is not a problem in this country. The question is, what is the problem? What need do you currently have in your life? I want you to think about that. That you... No, you wouldn't tell anybody else. You do not believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient to meet that need. They exist. They come out in a myriad of ways. We're not going to put a sign up that flashes and says, Hey, I don't think Jesus can do this. But if we watch our life, if we're careful to introspectively look in our hearts, at the heart level, we do not believe He's able to meet many of our needs. And I'm just talking about physical needs. Turn it even further inside. What spiritual dilemma are you having to which you think Jesus has no answer? What relationship has gone wrong and you say, God can't fix that. That's just lost. I have no hope there. Let me say one more time so that you never forget Jesus Christ is completely satisfying and all-sufficient. You never get insufficient funds from Him. And His blessing on your life really is not bound up in how many deposits you've made 
We're going to see that today. These people made no deposit in their relationship with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, they've used and abused him. They want the dog and pony show of miracles and they don't want him. They want a king that will overthrow Rome, but they don't want a relationship with the king. They've made no deposits. And yet we're going to see he's all sufficient. Jesus is all sufficient to meet all needs. Jesus uses his power to help the needy. Now, he could have done any number of miracles. Okay, let's just have a little fun. What could he have done? Is there anything he couldn't have done? I mean, if, if he'd have wanted to take this crowd to eat, he could have simply said in his thought life, in his mind, take us from this location to the heart of Jerusalem. We need something to eat. And the crowd would have moved from where he was in the desert to Jerusalem. Immediately. Could you imagine that? It says 5,000 men. Okay, I, I want to put this in perspective. Allowing for women and children, very conservative esti- estimate, 20,000 people standing around in the desert. 20,000. And I'm telling you, if he'd have wanted to, he could have said, hey guys, they need something to eat. Jerusalem's got plenty of food. The Passover has come. We're going to go there. Oh, Lord, it's a long way. How did we get here? If he'd have wanted to show off, he could have done that. If he'd have wanted to show off, make a spectacle of himself, he could have simply said, y'all hungry? Yeah, we're hungry. We're starved, man. Where are we going to get any food? Rain bread from heaven. It would have rained bread from heaven. Quails would have come in, well done, bacon wrapped, and ready to eat. You say, how do you know? Because in Exodus 16, the people said, Oh Moses, you've brought us out here to serve this impotent God. That's what the Old Testament says. They charged him with being insufficient. He's impotent. He can't meet our needs. When we were in Egypt, the gods there gave us plenty. We have bowls of stew that we threw out at the end of the day. You've brought us out here to serve this impotent God who cannot meet our needs. What will you do with us now? Have we come out here to die? And Moses goes and begs the Lord. And God says, Moses, every day, like dew falls in the night, bread from heaven will fall. And they said, well, we've got enough of this. We want something else. We're sick of this. Give us some variety in our life. God said, okay, that's fine. You want variety? Now, quails will fall along with them, bread, and you'll have plenty to eat. Well, we don't have anything to wash it down with, Lord. What do you think we can do? Create water out here in the desert? He says, Moses, go strike the rock. Water will come forth. They want food, I'll give them food. They want water, I'll give them water. God had already done it. If Jesus had wanted to, He could have just said, rain it down, God. Father, Make them flock here, the birds. Make the bread just appear. He could have done it. But His miracles are not to make a spectacle. Unlike many miracle workers in our day, His job is not to put on a dog and pony show. He uses His power to meet the needs of real people in real ways. 
John chapter 2 tells the story of Jesus at a wedding and he's the perfect guest because in their day, socially, this family was about to be an outcast because they didn't have the money to supply the wine for all their buddies who had come for the week-long celebration. They ran out. They were insufficient. And Jesus, when he was asked, said, fill those water pots up with water. All right, sure, fill them up. They fill them up. Jesus said, draw out of that purification water where people wash their feet and their hands, dirty water. Draw out water from that. Take it to the master of the feast and see if he enjoys the drink. Can you imagine the chuckles people got out of that? I bet people bust out laughing. Oh, he's making a fool out of these people. He's showing them they ought to have enough. They ought to be prepared. And the master of the feast drank from that nasty water and found it was the most pure, glorious, sparkling wine that ever touched the face of the earth. He went to the man of the hour and said, What have you done? Our custom says give the, the bad wine at the end, but you've saved the best for last. Because Jesus Christ is concerned and meets the needs of people. It's not His point to be a spectacle, it's his point to meet and su- supply for real needs with real people. John chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, after the woman at the well story, in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, the nobleman comes running and says, My son's sick. He's going to die. Come to my house. Heal him. Jesus says, Go ahead, your son's well. And immediately the man's son was well. He meets real needs of real people who are insufficient to help themselves. In John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, we find the miracle of the paralytic who could not get himself to the pool fast enough to heal himself. He was insufficient physically. He could not meet his need. And yet Jesus spoke a word. Get up, take up your bed, and walk forevermore. And he was healed. 38 years of paralysis, one spoken word, and he was healed forever. He meets the needs of real people with real problems. He uses His power to show that He is sufficient. Now we come to John 6, 1-14, and we're amazed by this miraculous move of Jesus to feed these hungry 20,000 conservatively people in the desert. Jesus uses His power to help the needy. Jesus uses His creative power for God's glory. This story might catch you unaware, and it might surprise you that Jesus has this kind of power, but it shouldn't. Neither should it have surprised these that were gathered around. Why? Because it's really not that big a miracle for Jesus. He had five barley loaves and two fish. And in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 3, my Bible says, He spoke into darkness, into nothingness, and created the universe. We're amazed that he takes five barley loaves and two fish and feeds 20,000 people, and yet this is the same one who John chapter 1 says that he created all things. And Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, says he holds all things together. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says it is by the power of his word that all things are maintained. We're surprised that this Jesus can feed 20,000 people with a 
poor boy's lunch? Why are we shocked by that? Doesn't that beg the question, what is wrong with our faith? What is wrong with us that we don't believe our God is this kind of God? You know, I've read commentators on this thing for the last couple of weeks. And and I appreciate lots of different men in the ministry. But I've heard some bizarre stuff about this passage. Because people just don't believe Jesus is this powerful. They don't believe He's all-sufficient. Get this one. Try this on for size. See if you get this out of this passage. One respected scholar said what Jesus did is He convinced them to sit in groups and share their lunch. He took the little boy's lunch and prayed over it, being an example to them. And He took a little bite and gave it to His men around and they shared and they had something to eat. And then the people out there said, Oh, well, that's kind of Jesus. Let's be like Jesus. And they all shared what they had. See, that's the kind of answer and that's the kind of critique on the Bible that comes from people who don't believe Jesus is all sufficient. That's the kind of critique and commentary that comes from people who believe that man is just a little bit in need of an example to help them act right. And what we need is not an example. We need a Savior. What we need is to come to the realization that we are broken, undone, dead, insufficient, can't meet our own needs, much less the needs of our family or our friends, and we need someone who can meet the need. Physically, we need someone to meet the need, and spiritually, we need someone to meet our needs. But we don't want that Savior. We want one that teaches us to share our lunch. That's a good moral lesson, I guess. It's not much different than the ones I heard growing up in Sunday school all my life. Because instead of focusing on the creative power of Jesus, how many of you sat through lessons that focused on how great the little boy was? At least he shared. Powerful, isn't it? That's life changing. It's not, is it? Is it any wonder that when kids are 18 and go to college, most of them stop going to church? Most of them. You know why? Because they've been taught about a little God who does little things like teach little boys to share a little food. All of it's little. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of tired of that. Because when I read my Bible, I read about a God who spoke everything into existence from nothing in Genesis chapter 1, who took dust. Now, you who are not farmers and don't depend on the ground to make a living, you don't understand what dust is. Dust is useless. Dust is like ashes from a fire. You can't plant a crop in dust. You can't make anything come up in dust. Go ask our farmers that live around here how well the dust has worked out for them this year. Most of them are going bankrupt. My Bible says our God took a little dust from the ground, carved out a human being. His spirit was breathed into the lungs of that human and the first man walked the face of the earth. I'm talking about a God who speaks everything into existence from nothing. I'm talking about a God who takes a little dust and doesn't make a Mississippi mud pie out of it, makes a human 
I'm not talking about a God that does little things. I don't know how little your God is, but I hope when you leave today, you think He's a lot bigger than when you walk through the door. Because in Genesis chapter 12, He looked at this little pagan who was unable to have children, whose servant was his heir, and whose family he had to leave behind. And he said, Abram, leave your father's country. Leave it all behind and go to a place. I'm going to show you where it is when you get there. Nice driving directions. He starts walking. Not a whole lot of faith. Doesn't really know what's going on. But he just knows that this God is big. He's never had an experience like he's had under the oaks at Mamre that day. It's a different experience. Because it's a different God. It's a big God. And from that one man and his one son, hundreds of thousands came out of Egypt 430 years later. One man, one son became a nation. And let's talk about that for a minute because they weren't a nation when they were in Egypt, really. They were slaves. They were peasants. They lived in Goshen. They were shepherds. They lived in Goshen because the Pharaoh put them there because he didn't want the Egyptians to be contaminated by these poor, pitiful people. And yet, this God we're talking about today who is all-sufficient spoke to one man in the desert who'd been there 40 years. And he sent one man back to speak to the most powerful man in the world and say, my God desires His people to worship Him. Let them out in the desert. That's where they need to be. And then our Bible tells us that He brought that Pharaoh to submission and those people, hundreds of thousands left, not barebacked as they had entered during the famine, but wealthy. They took the gold and the silver and the clothes and the food and the wine of Egypt and they left with a great possession. And when they got to the Red Sea, it's this God who split the sea. And when they crossed on dry land, it's this God who took them through the desert to the Mount Sinai. And when they got to Mount Sinai, it's this same God who spoke the Ten Commandments into existence twice, just in case you were counting, because these people were insufficient and they worshipped a golden calf and wanted to go back to Egypt. And yet God was sufficient. It's this same God who brought them to the edge of the promised land, who sent out the spies, who when the report came back, the people did not believe in Him, though He had worked many mighty miracles. And so that whole generation, including that one man Moses, died in the desert. And then it's these people who went into the promised land and conquered the most powerful fortified city in the land, Jericho, by blowing some horns and making a great shout. What problem is there in your life today that you have decided God can't fix? I don't know the answer, but I do know my God. I know my God and I know His Son and He is sufficient. Because once He brought them in the land, He put them into captivity and brought them back to the land. Thousands of years worth of history passed. And then there was one little girl 
probably about 14 years old. Nobody knew who she was. She was a virgin. And yet God came to her. In the, in the presence of God, she sat with an angel and he said, you will bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. Israel had a problem they could not fix and my God supplied all their needs from his riches in heaven. And so we're surprised when Jesus, this same God who did all those wonderful things, we're surprised when he's in the desert with 20,000 people and he says, how are we going to feed them, Philip? How are we going to feed them? We're surprised when he feeds them. What's wrong with our faith? Why do we serve such a little God? Why do we not believe he's sufficient? We look at this passage and we see so many things. But what we see is that God created a situation where Christ would show himself to be all sufficient. Jesus performed the miracle itself. I want you to look at the miracle itself because I know you're intrigued by it. I I always have been. Notice he knew what he would do. Look in verse 6. John says, He said this to to test him for he himself knew what he would do. When he asked Philip, how are we going to feed him? He already knew what he was going to do. He wasn't looking for an audible at the line of scrimmage. He knew what he was going to do. He was testing Philip. Notice that. I want you to understand that. He had a plan and he was working the plan. He was following and obeying his Father in heaven. I want you to notice that he uses people. Look at verses 5 through 11. He lifted up his eyes. He saw the crowd that was coming toward him. He asked the question of Philip, Where are we to buy bread for all these people? Philip answers him, Lord, 200 days, 8 months worth of work could not feed all these people even one bite. That's what 200 denarii are. Eight months worth of work. Almost a year. One of his disciples, Andrew, goes out in the crowd and he finds, we we know Jesus sent them them there to find food. Sent them out in the crowd. Find all the food they got. One boy came back with some food. Smart mama. Never seen your kid out without something to eat, you know? So her boy's the only one that's got any food. Andrew brings it back and says, Well, Lord, I found one. Of course, you know, it's, it's five barley loaves. And two pickled fish. And I don't know if you've noticed or took a head count yet, but that's a big crowd. Just thought you'd like to know. I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but see what you can do. It's all we got. He used the people. He used them to do this great and mighty miracle. He didn't have to. I've already made that point. But Jesus took the loaves from the boy who Andrew had brought. All of that people... All of that is people involved in what God is doing. Don't we serve a merciful and great God who chooses to use insufficient people to prove His sufficiency? They didn't have anything to offer this great God, but He would use them. Notice that He supplied more than enough. In verses 12 through 14, we come to the realization that not only did He feed them, but He fed them and had 12 baskets, carrying baskets of food left over. There's been a lot of speculation about this. No need to go there, really. 
I don't know if he was trying to talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. If he was talking about the 12 apostles themselves. Just as good a theory. He wanted his disciples to have leftovers for lunch the next day. That's just as good. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was doing with the 12 baskets. But they had 12. Maybe it was just 12 left over because that was all that went and picked up scraps. Maybe if 13 would have went and picked up scraps, there would have been 13 baskets left over. I don't, I don't really know. It's not that important. But it is important that he supplies not just the bare necessity, but leftovers. And then look at their response in verse 14. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And verse 15 tells us that they were going to take him and take him to Jerusalem and make him king. Why? Because they were lazy, gluttonous, power-mongering people. Just like we are. They wanted the blessings without the relationship. They wanted a king who would overthrow the yoke of Rome and give them a welfare state so they'd be the most wealthy people in the world. They just didn't want to know Jesus. They wanted the king. That's it. You don't have a relationship with the king in their mind. The king's in the palace. He stays to himself. But if we can put Jesus up there, we'll be better off. Let's put him up there. I don't really want to deal with all this stuff he's talking about. Repentance and all that stuff. Get him up there. Get him busy doing something worth something to us. Supplying our needs. That's the miracle. And that's their response. Their response is, oh yeah, he's the prophet. He's the king. Let's make him king. Jesus is sufficient. Let me quickly say this. Jesus uses insufficient men to perform true, powerful miracles of gospel work. The disciples were insufficient, yet Jesus chose to use them. The first one we see in this text is Philip. The Bible says he's Philip from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is, from Gal- is a city in Galilee. Philip would have known where to get food in this place. So it only makes sense that Jesus turns to him and says, Hey, it's your home province. Tell us where to eat. That's what people do when they come visit me in my hometown. They say, What's the best place to eat? Let's go. Well, that's what Jesus was doing with Philip. Philip, where are we going to get food? Now, he also, I think it's interesting how Philip answers. Jesus has asked him, Where are we going to buy food at? And Philip doesn't say, Lord, only you know. Lord, only you can feed all these people. Lord, all the food in Galilee would barely feed them. But I'm sure you can do it. What does he say? He does a quick calculation in his mind. There's probably about 20,000 people. It would be 200 days worth of work. That's eight months. Uh, Jesus, we're in trouble. We ain't good enough. We can't do it. Come up with plan B. Because you ain't going to feed these people today maybe they won't realize they're hungry send them home that's what another gospel writer said disband them send them home they can go to town and get something to eat we don't have to feed them we can't feed them we are insufficient but why did jesus ask philip besides his home province besides that he's the mathematician of the bunch why did god why did christ ask him Well, the Bible tells us he did it to test him. Look in verse 6. He's testing his faith. And Philip fails. Philip fails. And there's instances right now where God 
as testing my faith and your faith, and we're failing. It comes in a myriad of ways. You know, it's like money concerns. Let's just talk about money for a minute. That seems to drive people. Money. Some of you add one plus one, you get two, and you need six, and you say, there's no way I can pay my bills. I'm broke. And what do you do first? That's the key question. When you add up the checkbook and it ends that way, what do you do first? I'm not saying it's all you do, but what do you do first? Head of the household. Some of you are there today. Some of you found out you're there yesterday and you've come to church today. And you say, I don't know how we're going to pay the bills. I don't know how we're going to keep the lights on. They're going to take our house. We're not going to have anything. And you're the leader of your house. And your answer last night to your wife or to your children was, don't worry about it. I'll go to the bank Tuesday when it opens and I'll get us along. We'll make it. That was your first response. Others of you said, Credit cards, that was the first thing that came to your mind. Credit cards, I know that's not a good thing, but i got to have it. I mean, God knows i got to pay my bills. That's the only way I can do it. Let's go get a credit card. Let's put it on there. I tell America right now has more credit card debt than they have income in a year's time. Because that's the first reaction of people like me and you. And what am I saying should be our first reaction? Father, I don't have enough. I'm not sufficient. My family needs you. I may have been unwise. I'm sure I have been. But God, I've got to count on you. Help me know what to do. Is that your response? Not not for little kids. I'm not talking about little kids. I'm talking about heads of the house and wives. How do you respond when the bills outweigh your checking account? Is it to call on God? I don't know, but in Matthew 6, I get the clear impression from Jesus again, speaking firsthand on the Sermon on the Mount, that God provides food for the sparrows and He clothes the grass of the field better than Solomon. And yet our answer is human, not spiritual. Enough of money. Let's move on to some other things. Think with me about it. Sharing the gospel. Some of you tried that week and you found insufficiency. You said, I, I can't do it. I, when I try to open my mouth, it just comes out all wrong. I'm not good at it. And what was your first response? For some of you, it was, I'm not going to do that anymore. Boy, it's just not for me. I hope somebody else will share the gospel. And for some of you, it was, man, I need to take a training class. I need to learn how to share the gospel. And I'm not saying those are bad responses. But whatever happened to hitting the knee and saying, Oh God, I am insufficient to share your gospel. I'm weak. I'm undone. Please speak through me the words of life so this person can understand. One more place. Let's go back to that place we started at with your husband and your wife. Because some of you have come here with a lot of guilt. And it's in this relationship area. And what you're telling yourself is, I'm an insufficient husband and I'm an insufficient wife. And yet, all you've done to cure that is read a book, talk to somebody else that's a wife or a husband, and those aren't bad things. 
but you haven't paused to say, God, I can't do it. I'm insufficient. You'll have to do it for me. What's the first reaction? Philip's first reaction is why he fails the test. And I'm not saying that later he shouldn't have done the math, and I'm not saying later he shouldn't have went through the apparatus of thinking about how to feed them, but his first response should have been, without question, Jesus, I don't know how to do it, but you do. Now let me tell you, this, this place we're in right now, it's a desert, and there ain't a whole lot of food, but I'm sure you have a plan. I trust you. Do you want me to go get some food? I'll try. It's going to be hard, but I'll try. There was no faith exhibited here by Philip. None. Just like me a lot of times. Andrew, the second person in the story, he goes and brings aboard to Jesus three times in this, this gospel. Andrew's mentioned, and all three times he's bringing someone. And he brings his brother. He brings this person. He brings in John 12. He brings the Greeks to Jesus. Andrew always turns to Jesus in times of trial. Look at his response. He's Simon Peter's brother. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And What is that among so many? So his faith isn't real strong either, is it? Then the boy. He's insignificant. He's poor. How do we know he's poor? Is that an assumption we've made? No. He brought barley loaves. Barley loaves were the cheapest food in the world of the Israelites. As a matter of fact, most people didn't eat barley loaves. So this little poor boy brings his five barley loaves and his two fish because Andrew went and got him. Don't mistake that. He didn't bring them to Jesus. Like some people like to say, he didn't say, hey, I know how to solve the problem. Here's my stuff. Fix it. Here, Jesus, I believe in you. He was in the back of the crowd and Andrew made his walk through the crowd and he saw this boy with his lunch out and he said, Hey, son, Jesus wants you because he said get all the food that's out here. And I imagine that the little boy thought probably, what am I going to do to help the situation? There's a lot of people here, mister. Don't build the boy up too much. He was insufficient also. So what's the point of going through all this insufficiency of people? Ending the message now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because see... God takes small resources, small numbers, small talent. He does great miracles. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise 
according to this world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is little, low, and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Jesus, standing before 20,000 people, said, Philip, how will we feed them? And Philip said, well, it's impossible, Lord. Andrew, the rest of the disciples, go get all the food and gather it and bring it to me. And they brought back five poor, pitiful loaves of bread and two fish. And one little boy who had a little bit of nothing, really. No real talents. They brought it to Jesus, though. Well, here's what we got. But what good's that going to do you? Jesus said, in effect, My Father has chosen the weak. My Father has chosen the foolish. My Father has chosen the poor. My Father has chosen the nothings. My Father has done all of this so that nobody takes credit for who they are. They only boast in Me. So before you leave lunch today, I want all of you disciples and all you people to know that the little boy didn't feed you and neither did these five loaves and two fish, but I fed you. And He took it. And He said a prayer over it. And the picture is that He held that bread and those fish and His disciples took it. The Bible says Jesus fed them. You notice that from John? It does not say the disciples fed the people. It says Jesus fed the thousands. Jesus did it. This is the picture. This is the only way I can understand it. He had them seated there in fifties and hundreds and there's 20,000. You can imagine the throng of people. Some in the back could hardly hear Him or see Him probably. And yet all they can see is this man with his hands like this with bread and fish. And he could, they could see in the back these 12 people. Imagine the time it took to take pieces of bread and hand it to the people in the front row. And those people started eating. And what they came to realize is every time they broke something off, nothing disappeared from the bread. And they ate and they talked and they enjoyed their meal while Jesus stood with hands open to the crowd with the fish and the bread. And the disciples continued to serve. Imagine serving 20,000 people. It takes some time, I bet. And yet the people in the back begin to catch on probably before the people in the front because the people in the front are like us. They started gluttoning themselves and they got distracted with what they were eating because it tasted good. But the people in the back of the crowd looked at the front and saw this picture of this one man with his hands outstretched with five barley loaves and two fish and yet he fed the whole crowd. And the disciples got the real blessing because they saw insufficiency plus Jesus equals all we will ever need. We need nothing else. We don't need anything. He is all in all. And I 
just am willing to believe that somebody thought about Isaiah. You remember? Isaiah is the prophet who said, Come, you who have no money, buy bread to eat. Come, anybody who's thirsty, take something to drink. Come and eat and drink and be filled to overflowing so that you're no longer hungry and no longer thirsty. I will give you all you need is what Isaiah said God told them in the Old Testament. I will give you all these riches. I will give you all you could ever want or need. From myself, I'll give you these things. And you don't need money. And you don't need possessions. And you don't need a name. Come to me, all ye who are weary. Come and I'll give you rest. Eat and drink from the life that I offer. And you'll never be thirsty. You'll never be hungry. I'm all you need. And 20,000 people said, this is the Messiah. It's the prophet. This is him. So what will it be for you? The wisdom, the riches, the power, the name that this world can offer you for a season? Or will you be the poor, the weak, the insufficient? That God might use you. You say, I don't have talent. Whatever you got in Christ is more than enough. I don't have money. Jesus said, you have no need. I can't even love my wife. I can't even love my husband, much less my neighbor. And Jesus says, I love them. And through me, you can love them. All that's left is to answer that first question. What problem is it that you have that you think He cannot fix? As I finished studying Friday morning in my office, one passage came to my mind. And it and it was almost, I never, I don't think about this passage that much because it's not one of my favorite books of the Bible. But it was just, I couldn't get away from it. And the passage was 1 Kings chapter 4. Elisha went to the prophet's widow who had the son. You remember that story? And she said, my husband's dead. We can't pay our bills and they're going to take my two boys for slaves. That's all I got is what she was saying. These are my two boys. And Elisha said to her, so what are you going to give me if I fix the problem? That always has appalled me. And yet, it led to a great miracle. You remember what happened? She said, I don't have anything. He said, go borrow your neighbor's vessels and bring them here. And he filled them with oil, all of them, enough to pay the debt and have her sons for herself and not as slaves. And then it goes right to the Shunammite woman, right? All she had was a child. That's it. And now God's going to take it. And yet God didn't take it. He raised that boy to life. And you remember the statement of Jesus in Chorazin 
and Bethsaida, Galilee, woe unto you, woe unto you. All these miracles done in your presence and you don't believe. And the testimony he gave to them in Nazareth and, and again in Galilee was that the Shunammite and the widow in Elisha's day, they trusted God. They had all they needed. That story came to me. And I don't, I don't normally do that, but this is why it's important to me. Because in my life, I see that picture. I am insufficient. When I was about 16, I had a dream of adopting a child. And didn't know how it was going to happen. I married a woman who had a dream of adopting a child. And that time is on us now. We're in the process. And you know what I've done? I've done more worrying about how to get the $20,000 it takes to adopt a child than I have trusting that a God who is all-sufficient will supply all of my needs, as, first, as Philippians 4.19 says. And my God, Paul said, shall supply all of your needs from His riches in heaven through His Son, Jesus Christ. And you know what I realized as I finished the study? This study wasn't for you. It was for me. I looked at the five barley loaves in my life and the two fish and said, it ain't enough. It'll never happen. It's too big a deal. And yet I stand before you today able to say, I don't know where it's coming from, but there'll be a little one here in a couple years who God will supply through His riches in heaven, not through me. And I thank God for it. And I pray that as you think about this message, what is it you believe God can't do? What is it you believe God can't do through His Son, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we are insufficient. You are all sufficient. Help us this week to leave believing what little we can, what little is possible. Our faith may be small, but let us believe that you are all we need. Protect us. Protect our minds. Protect our hearts. Help us to cling on to you. Because Jesus, you are all sufficient, all satisfying, all glorious. You are all in all. Amen. Thank you for joining me in this little lesson from John 6.